You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Shelly, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. So my name is Shelly Bailey, and I'm the president and founder of Family Health. Family is the nation's first 50-state fertility telehealth solution, all managed by our mobile app. I have a background in independent community pharmacy. All of our businesses should be set up so that if some unforeseen circumstance happens, you always want to make sure you're optimizing value for your family. 50 states, is that kind of a pain in the ass? I mean, was that like your biggest, for me, once I start thinking about 50 states, I'm thinking about regulations and all that. That is the, the biggest limiting factor, you know, for um, family as we look to scale was really the state-by-state legal compliance related to, um, related to telehealth. For family, what we've chosen to do is we have fertility-specific clinical protocols that family owns and we use to deliver care to our customers, but related to who's providing the telehealth services on behalf of family, we have chosen to partner with a network of physicians with a telehealth company to deliver those services to us because they have their drumming certifications and all sorts of both federal and state you know, licensures so that they're able to help make sure that family is legally protected. You come from a pharmacy background, but family, F-A-M-L-E-E, you're not necessarily a pharmacy. You're not providing medicines to people. Is that right? Or do I have that wrong? So we have a relationship with a pharmacy partner that sends prescriptions to the consumer if the consumer needs it. So our workflow is our customers have their telehealth visit, the providers review their lab results, they review our clinical protocols. If prescription medications or supplements make sense, then the clinicians do write orders for those and our pharmacy partner ships those medications to the customer's home. I ain't no genius, but in talking to you right now, it sounds like this is perfect because you don't have the physicians and you don't have the pharmacies. You're just sitting back and orchestrating this. Is that right? Well, you certainly make it sound easier than it's supposed to be for me. But um, from that perspective, I guess, you know, in a way you're correct. Where where family is unique, which was, again, coupling kind of my background in pharmacy and the background of our clinical teams, is that we actually have the proprietary clinical protocols that we're using that are and that our telehealth clinicians also use when they're delivering the care and treatment hmm. to the customer. And so in, in the world of fertility, my journey and a lot of other women's journeys is you go to the OBGYN, they might write for drugs like Clomid or Letrozole. So a lot of your listeners, pharmacies sell these relatively inexpensive medications. That's kind of the extent of the fertility care and treatment that most OBGYNs offer. So our unique value proposition is that we have, you know, 200 pages of clinical protocols that our providers are using when they deliver the care to our customers. So, um, yeah, you make it sound easy. It certainly doesn't seem so easy from my perspective. Whenever I was managing my family pharmacy, I would always walk around with kind of a scowl on my face, you know, so people thought that you were 
busy and they don't pile other crap on you and they thought that you were focused and all that. But really, a good manager is just supposed to have the thing just humming along. You shouldn't have to have that scowl on my face like I do. That's true. I would say we're probably not at that point yet since we're new. And so we are, you know, working through, uh, we have a mobile app. So like I didn't realize launching the startup that I was also going to be in like the health tech space. Yeah. I see myself as a pharmacy operator. I don't see myself as a health tech leader or a IT person and things. So as part of my journey, I've had to uh, certainly expand my skill set as we have a mobile app that coordinates our telehealth and our lab results and our medication delivery and kind of building out those mobile apps and the workflow for the customer. That's been things that have certainly stretched me outside of my typical skill set. So Shelly, for all those that think you just swooped in and have these great ideas and you're coming from some other industry and so on, you've got a background in pharmacy business. What is it? My background in pharmacy, you know, started when I was like 10 years old working at my grandparents' mom and pop pharmacy. They had a rule that as soon as you could see over the counter, you could work at the pharmacy, but I'm only 5'2", so I wasn't very tall. So it took a while for me to be able to work there, but yeah, so I've been in pharmacy my entire life. I chose to go to business school as opposed to pharmacy school, but my partner and I owned a uh, pharmacy that was in continuous operation for 118 years. Wow. Last 15 years of that, we were really focused on specialty pharmacy, did a lot of 340B government relations and things like that. During that time, I served as an advisor for companies like Prescribed Wellness, group purchasing organizations like IPC and McKesson. But you're right, unlike a lot of startups, you know, someone comes in, some of these big women's health startups in the laboratory space had founders that like came from journalism or different backgrounds. For me, you know, coming with the pharmacy background, especially since we have pharmacy partners and a pharmacy component, is very much in alignment with what I've, what I've been doing for 20 years. Uh, my, my focus in pharmacy for the last 15 years or so was in HIV and hepatitis C. Hmm. And, you know, I kind of, you think about that continu- continuum of care where you don't just tell someone, oh, you rapid test someone for HIV and you say, oh, you have HIV, like, good luck. You don't do that, right? You have to provide this integrated solution, not just because of the positive outcomes, you know, that people need, but it's it's illegal to, to test someone and not provide treatment. And I saw those gaps in fertility. There's all these at-home labs that say, you're very low ovarian reserve. You know, you don't have a lot of eggs. Good luck with that. And they don't provide wraparound care. And so I think from my perspective, what I did in HIV and Hep C for so long, it was easy for me to think about bringing that into the fertility space. When you finally got out of the business, at the time, was that a sad tale or a challenging tale? Or did you leave like a hot thing to get something hotter? I would say the latter, but actually my journey with the pharmacy is I had started at my grandparents' pharmacy and it was a medicine shop pharmacy that actually Mm. closed in 1999. So our specialty pharmacy that we sold to the specialty division of CVS in early 2018, we definitely sold from a position of strength as opposed to a position of weakness. Um, the due diligence process related to selling that store actually took about five years. Hmm. You know, all of us with our businesses should always be building something to sell, right? Maybe there's a tragic accident or, or yeah. whatever might happen in someone's life that's unexpected. You always want to make sure your company's in a position to get the best outcome, you know, if you need it to sell. So we definitely, so yeah, we, 
we weren't pushed out in any way, shape or form. We just had some good opportunities to exit. And my partner was 63, early 60s at the time. And, you know, he kind of got tired of working seven days a week for 40 yeah. years. So it was it was an opportune time for us to, you know, start to work on other things. So Shelly, you weren't just a high school stock kid. You had enough skill and your schooling and your MBA, which came later, but you decided to stay there and have these pharmacy dreams at the time, right? That's correct. And I kind of did start as a high school stock girl at the pharmacy that my partner and I sold, Central Drugs. I actually started when I was 16, but because I had years of experience working at my grandparents' medicine shop, I actually came in as a pharmacy technician when I was 16, you know, worked school and such. And then I guess the pharmacy kind of shifted as my personal education and background shifted as well. So we we were a regular mom and pop independent pharmacy. And then as I had the access to more information from both my undergrad and to, you know, into my master's, I guess what I could say is I, I like strategy and I mm-hmm. like operations. And so specifically the focus on strategy and how to really niche down your pharmacy. So we couldn't be everything to everyone, but we were phenomenal at providing HIV and hepatitis C services and government affairs and advocacy. So as as I learned more, that really helped support the pharmacy. And so we grew and expanded too. And actually, a lot of the people that we hired after me starting as a 16-year-old, we would hire more high school age students who also didn't become pharmacists, but stayed in pharmacy. So for example, one of the guys I hired in my you know early 20s, as a 16-year-old, he actually didn't even tell his mom and dad he was interviewing with us. He now does 340B services for a large disproportionate share hospital. So they stayed in the industry, but maybe they weren't as narrow as you know being a pharmacist specifically. How do you think your past would have changed if you went into pharmacy? In other words, you spent six years in pharmacy school versus going to business school. Do you think that you're route would have been a lot different now? Or do you think it still could have progressed? You would just have different skills, but you still would have maybe have gone in the direction you went. I could say I'm definitely not smart enough to have went to pharmacy school. So I wouldn't have got in anyways. Smart is a very general thing, right? Because nowadays you can say you're smart at art. You know, you just weren't smart in that field. Well, thank you. Yeah, science and mathematics, I would not suggest are my strong um, suits. So let's say I had gotten, you know, got into pharmacy school. I think I probably would have always maybe not got to where I'm at right now, but got to some point in the middle because I've had a interest in business and also always had the benefit of growing up mm. around small business yeah. operators. So my grandparents owned the pharmacy, my dad owns a steel foundry, my a uh, business partner who's a, I'd like to say he's definitely one of the smartest pharmacists and people out there. His family came from small business. So I always had small business operators in my family. So I think I would have always had an interest in the business side of how could we have better outcomes for our customers, but also maintain, um, you know, a viable business that was financially profitable. I guess another answer I'll say is, is why did I go to business school at all? I was 16. I was working at the pharmacy as a pharmacy technician. 
after school. And I actually had a Fulbright scholarship as a bassoonist at one of the state schools here in Oregon. I never knew there was such a thing. There's a bassoonist major. Yeah. And if there's even an instrument named that, because a lot of people <laughs> aren't aware. I always say I play the bassoon and everyone will say, oh, the oboe. No, not the oboe, the bassoon. But I was working at the pharmacy, was going to go to music school. At 5'2", the bassoon is almost bigger than you are, right? You're correct. I had like a backpack that I wore my bassoon on. It it was more than half as tall as me, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I wasn't your traditional bassoonist, I guess. All right, so you were offered a bassoon major. A scholarship is a music major. Music major. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But you didn't do that. Yeah, I worked at the pharmacy, you know, for a few years at Central Drug and before that at my grandma's grandparents pharmacy. And I guess I always just knew I liked business. I liked family owned and operated businesses. And I also knew deep down I wasn't good enough as a music major to really have a successful career. And so the Mm. day before school started, I decided I would go to business school as opposed to music school. All right. So you go to business school and then how long after graduation from business school do you go get your MBA? Um, I guess for my personal journey, I continued to work at the pharmacy the entire time I was getting my undergrad at business school and everything I learned. What was really great about actually working and going to business school, both for undergrad and master's, is at the pharmacy or any small business, you almost kind of have your own little laboratory that you immediately deploy what you've learned for sure and see what worked for us what didn't work for us and that was a very fantastic thing for my own individual growth as well as you know for the pharmacy's trajectory and i guess you know i graduated got got my undergrad degree and then i waited about two years before i got my master's during that time the pharmacy you know continued to grow we weren't as niched as we obviously were when we exited, but I think we were starting down that path a little bit. And then once I started uh, getting my MBA, I went to a school that really focuses on entrepreneurship and strategy. That really just shifted how I thought. And then again, because I was doing that while I was at the pharmacy, it gave us the great advantage to be able to start deploying what I was learning immediately. Why did you go for your MBA? Honestly, at the time, to, to help the pharmacy. Really? I, think I knew that there was, yeah, there was a lot I learned as an undergrad, but I knew there was just so much more we could, you know, that I could be learning that we could use at the pharmacy. How many employees did you have when you started your MBA? When I started my MBA, I mean, we probably only had two. I mean, self and my partner. Well, myself and my partner and another pharmacy tech and then a, a pharmacy cashier. When we exited, we had about 14. That's cool that you went for your MBA. That's a neat thing that you went. I think a lot of MBA people, including myself, I thought about an MBA and I was trying to get my accounting and all this stuff needed to maybe go into an MBA. I never did though. But that's interesting that you got it to just help your business and yourself, because I think a lot of people go into it either because their bigger company wants it or is going to pay for it, or they don't really have the direction of where they want to go and stuff. So that's cool that you actually chose that and dedicated yourself for that in your, at the time, smaller business. Well, thank you. I can say, you know, it wasn't just me. My partner who's a pharmacist, he had to work that much harder when I was out at school or the people, you know, at the pharmacy, we probably 
kept people on hold a little bit longer than normal, didn't have, you know, as much the capacity. So it really was a team effort, but it also very much ended up benefiting all of us as well as benefiting the community as we continued to shift and modify, you know, the value proposition that we were able to bring, um, you know, to people throughout Oregon. Do you think that was a good decision? What percent of your classes do you think you could have thrown out and still got the value of the MBA? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, probably, a, hopefully no one from Babson's listening, but it's a great school, but you probably could have omitted a lot of um, a lot of the classes. But I guess sometimes it takes a little bit of everything to kind of get you where you need to be. I, I could say, though, I definitely, I come, you know, from a background of a father in manufacturing and such. I certainly don't feel that everyone should go to college or everyone should get an MBA. I imagine a lot of the classes were like accounting and stats and all that kind of business science kind of stuff. Is that right? For a person, yeah, who's not as quantitatively minded, you're right. There's a lot of finance. There's a lot of accounting. I did my best, but I certainly would not suggest that I'm an expert in any way. I guess what it does show you, though, is that you need to learn enough so that you have a little bit of a base so that when you outsource, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of division of labor, right? I know mm -hmm. what I'm good at. Let me do that. You know what you're good at. Let's work together. And so from that perspective, I do think you always want to have a foundational knowledge of things, and then you can work with people who specialize. I imagine working in your position now and having to do that division of labor, it's probably pretty good to have the MBA behind your name, isn't it? Especially working with a bunch of the uh, medical fuddy-duddies that have like the letters behind their name. It's got to be kind of nice to come and say, well, I don't have those medical ones, but I've got enough letters behind my name. You know, early on in my career, and I think a lot of other people's careers, it is helpful, especially when you're working with, you know, people that are PharmDs and such that you can show that, okay, well, I have some level of knowledge. It might not be the same, but it's it's something different. It was helpful. I mean, at this stage in my career, I guess I believe just in general that I, I just appreciate what someone knows and can offer, however they learned it, whether they learned it on the job. How, however they got to the skill set that they have, that's what I value. But, you know, in reflecting on the MBA, one thing that is helpful, I think, and I, I remind myself of this with my new company, as well as with Central Drugs, is Babson used what they call the case study method, which is what Harvard does and a lot of business schools do. So instead of just reading books and, like, taking tests on what's in the book, you're reading what's happening at someone's business. That's cool. And then as an outsider, you're saying oh gosh, this is where they messed up. This is where what they did good. And you know, how could what we learn relate to them in that environment? I remind myself of that all the time. Like Shelly, step away. If you were reading this as a case study, what would you do? Not what are you doing right now? Because you're kind of in the weeds, screwing around with stuff that you feel is important. But what if some MBA student was reading what you're doing this quarter? Would they actually say you're doing a good job? You know, and most of the time it's no, because as founders and, you know, pharmacy owners, I, we're all bogged down in the details. So an outsider would come in and say, wow, you're focusing on the wrong thing. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. What if this was a case study? What would someone say about what I'm doing? If you as an MBA were using central drugs, that process of getting it ready for a sale, finding the buyer 
actually making the sale? How well did you take care of your mental health during that time? Were there struggles? What did you learn? If you could look at that as an MBA student and that was your project, how did it go looking in from the outside? I would say we did a phenomenal job, but because I'm a perfectionist, I would like to share to benefit others what we could have done better. And and the only reason why we didn't do it better was because we were so busy being busy. You know, we had 400 scripts a day we were filling. We had nurses. We had all of our accreditations. And, and we really did do the best job we could with the resources we had at the time. Um, so, yeah. So I think I think we did a phenomenal job. One thing we did well was we found a good broker who was willing to work through things with us for the long term. So not a broker who wanted to turn and burn, find a buyer, get his commission and move on. Our broker works with us for like seven years. Wow. I guess I'm a big fan of the book, The E-Myth. Yeah, I love that book. Michael Gerber. Yeah. So <laughs> if you read The E-Myth and then looked at what we were doing, you would certainly say, we were just so busy being busy that there was other things we just couldn't focus on because we just didn't have the staff. Yep. So like one of the things, if we could have improved, and again, everyone can always improve on what they're doing. We certainly should have brought in more employees earlier so that my partner and I could have really focused on building to sell. So there's a book by John Warlow named Built to Sell. It's kind of like the E-Myth. It's across industry. It's written as a story. It's very easy to listen to or read. I suggest anyone with a business read this book. And, and one of the big takeaways that we actually naturally did as a pharmacy is to really niche down. Like, so if, you know, if your business can't run without you, do you really have a business or do you just pay for a job? Yeah. Right. And um, I think, you know, certainly some of the things I could have done better was, as you addressed earlier in our conversation, micromanaging is something that I personally struggle with. So had I micromanaged a little less, brought in more people, we could have scaled and done more, you know, maybe before we exited, that would have put, put us in a better position. But there's a lot of things we did really well. And I think, you know, for what point in time that things were with the volume we were doing, with the risk associated with the drugs we were dispensing, with the government affairs and things. I do think we did a good job, but there's always so much that you don't think of when you're selling yeah. that just as much as you prepare, you almost can't possibly know of until something happens after the fact. It's easy to kick yourself later after something and say, we could have done those two things better. It's like, fair enough, you could have done them better, but here's the problem. There were a thousand things like that that could have come your way that now you could be looking at and saying, oh, we picked two out of those thousand. It's like in retrospect, you can always look back and say, we could have done better on a couple things, but that's two out of a thousand. Now that you know what they were, of course you can look at them and refine them. But at the time, you didn't know what they were. Well, yeah. And something like I always like to share with owners is like, no one cares more about your transaction and in the liabilities after the transaction than you. Right. Like we had great attorneys, a good broker, but they're in it because I'm an optimistic pessimist by nature. Thankfully, we really focused a lot on what are the potential liabilities post transaction that could come up. And we really did try to plan for those to the best of our ability. 
But again, things always come up. But I, I just remind anyone, you know, talking to brokers or even, you know, looking to sell in 10 years, no one cares like you. So don't believe someone's answer when they say, oh, don't worry about it, whatever. No, worry about it and try to plan for it. What emotion during that time period of getting ready to sell and selling was the most difficult for you to deal with? So during the period, so one thing we did phenomenal at was because we sold to a specialty division of CVS, we worked with them to keep our storefront. So they kept our location mm. exactly you know, where it was. They also kept all of our staff and they kept staff at the pay that we had been paying them. So I feel like we did a phenomenal job of taking care of our employees while we were exiting. Not everyone has that opportunity, but for us, it was something that was very important to us. We actually had the option to have a file buy type of sale instead. And we probably would have, it would have been a much easier and potentially even a little more money, but we actually chose the much harder route so that our team could stay together once we exited. But um, it was an extremely emotional process, you know, related to selling. I think when you're doing it and you're going through it, you're so exhausted because you're trying to keep the level of care as good as possible. You're still filling prescriptions. You're you're doing everything. And then your emotions almost come after the fact because you can't process it all while you're doing it. I can say for me personally, I couldn't go by the pharmacy for over a year. Wow. After we started, like, I don't know, you're probably going to make me cry since I'm pregnant and everything. But it, my partner had spent over 40 years there himself. I spent 20. And so for both of us, I mean, I looked at the pharmacy as a family member. Yeah, it sounds weird to say, but um, it was an extremely emotional process. I think we did a good job during the negotiation and the due diligence of not making it an emotional process. But once it happens, you know, I, I felt lost. I mean, I'm a pharmacy operator. I don't know what else I am besides that. It was a very difficult transition. And it would have been harder, you're saying, to do all that and then go into your staff of a dozen and saying, you're all fired. I know that that's the case for lots of pharmacy owner operators. And I just, I have so much sympathy for them on having those discussions because it it was not optimal. I'm sure our employees would have much preferred us and, it, you know, they didn't go to work that day thinking that that was going to be, you know, what happened. Yeah. But felt that we tried our very best to to make it as positive of a transition for our employees as possible. And then with that said, I do feel the ProCare division of CVS, which is who we sold to, I think they tried their best in the corporate environment that they have to operate in to try to make that transition for our employees as positive as possible as well. But yeah, my heart goes out to pharmacy owner operators, especially with the economics with DIRs since 2018. Um, how they're struggling with closing because they had to, right? Mm -hmm. As well as laying off staff, um, especially in the small communities where there's not as many available good jobs, you know, as there is in an urban area. Yeah, my heart really goes out to these pharmacy owner operators. Put yourself out about 72 hours from really being done with your pharmacy. What is the one word you could describe your feelings as three days out? 
Yeah, the one word to describe my feelings three days out was just grief. Grief. From my perspective, that was the the first feeling I felt when we sold the pharmacy, which is interesting because we were at a position where we had decided it was most optimal for us to sell. So we weren't pushed out. We weren't, yeah, you know, economically strained where we had to sell. But still, the pharmacy, I think of the pharmacy as like a family member. And I felt like I lost a family member. Sometimes when you're cornered, if you have to fire someone because of finances or you have to leave another company you've worked with a long time because they no longer are able to do this for your business objectively and so on. Those are easy ones when you have to say, we decided this. And so the feelings that I'm feeling now are my responsibility because I brought them on because I didn't have to sell. That's a good way to live your life on that offensive way versus defensive all the time. But it's harder than you're responsible for your feelings. You can't blame them on anyone else. <laughs> yeah. You can't blame them anywhere else. Not that we ever should blame our feelings on anybody else, but especially when you brought them on yourself and you could have delayed them maybe another two or three years and maybe they never would have come up. Yeah, I will say in hindsight, the post-sale period of my life was the, well, I am young, but has been the hardest part of my life thus far. You think working seven days a week, a hundred hours a week, you think that's the bad part. But from my perspective, it was the post-sale period that was a bigger emotionally taxing period of my life because... And then I guess we, we all get caught up in this, or maybe not everyone, but the, the pharmacy was my identity. It should, I shouldn't live my life like that, but, but that's very much, you know, who I was. That was what year? We sold in January of 2018. So not talking about your new business, but the grief or the identity, did that start to go away at some point? This is a bad comparison because it's not the same as losing a family member, but I would say it never goes away. Wow. When I tell someone who I am and what I do, I do I do consulting in the healthcare IT space. I have my own startup, um, but I always start with, I was a former specialty pharmacy owner-operator. Really? You know, co-owner-operator. So I would say it'll always be my identity. I can't part with that for some reason. Even if you talk to someone kind of out of the blue, that still feels like a big part of your identity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is who I am. Whether I'm talking to someone at the pizza shop or, oh, what do you do? I still say pharmacy because that's who I am. It's just, I guess, where my interests are. It's, you know, it, it, I'm sure, you know, you know, with your background, your customers, they all become like your family. And right. I think that in other industries, you might interact with vendors right so you have vendors you work with you have customers like a few b2b clients that you work with but you don't have that personal connection with them that you do at, at a pharmacy at pharmacy we had because we were 118 years old when we sold i mean we had generations of families that were customers and so it's yeah i don't i think maybe when you're in it you don't appreciate it or see it or you don't realize how it impacts you at your core until until that part of your life is, is gone. But your customers are really part of who you are. So you're on your way with family and you're going to grow into this huge monster of a company. Are you concerned that 
you'll never find that personal joy that you had in community pharmacy. I wouldn't be. I'd say, screw it. I'm so sick of some of that crap that goes on. I'm out of there. I can say with family, where we're actually supporting women and families who have not been able to get pregnant. So they're coming to us as like their last hope, you know, because a lot of them don't have the income ability to do IVF or they have religious limitations that um, makes it prohibited for them. So far, so the people that we've had so that we have been able to help get pregnant and one had their first baby in February, that is... That is a very emotional, positive benefit to me. Like I tell people, even if we just helped that one family have their baby, this was completely worth it. Um, But with that said, it's still because I'm not seeing people and grandma comes in to pick up their script or like it's, it's different, I guess. And that's maybe more because of the online nature of things. Obviously, Zoom helps and you're able to build a rapport. But that kind of like team family we had at the pharmacy where first of all all of us working together were a family you love each other you sometimes don't agree with what someone did or whatever but like you're a family just like any other family and then your customers are your broader family I don't know if I have like the skill set to just naturally or to purposely build what kind of naturally happens in the community pharmacy setting. I can say that like one thing about community pharmacies that people always say, if it wasn't for community pharmacies and for Meals on Wheels, so many people in our communities would end up in assisted living so much earlier in their lives. And so there's this natural community that's built with community pharmacy that I just, I don't know if I can recreate that in other things. I can do other things that create a lot of joy and value. And again, helping people have babies is a a huge joy, but it's, it's still different. There's a certain joy and beauty about community pharmacy, but like we talked about with your music choices, I mean, you would have loved to have bassooned your way into the future, but you've got to think about what the market is demanding along with community pharmacy. You know, you'd love to maybe build something that does the same exact thing with the camaraderie and the family and things like that, but that doesn't necessarily equate to financial success. And so unfortunately, sometimes you have to kind of move on from your loves and hopefully like with the family and giving new life and things like that, you're finding it, but it's probably not always the same. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting analogy that you share because I mean, community pharmacy is obviously going through that transition and has been for a long time, but increasingly so since DIRs became so much more robust in 2019, I, I really have, no idea how a single like owner operator one location pharmacy is is even able to do it they're they're doing it and they're providing the value to the community but like if you look at the recent ncpa cardinal digest that talks about you know the economics of community pharmacies honestly most of the owner operators could make more working at cvs or working at walgreens and i know they're not doing that because they do kind of believe in like what I shared about this sense of community and family, but it's really sad because a 
a smart pharmacist that's hardworking and has a great team shouldn't have to decide between staying in the black every month or, you know, being in the red, but providing services to the community. And right now that's really what most of them are deciding. They're deciding to be there, delivering medications, you know, on their way home from work and doing all these things. And, but they can't pay themselves even a wage that they would otherwise make in a chain. And, and, you know, as much I believe in family and I love what I'm doing for family, but because I always have a heart for community pharmacy, you know, I'm also interested in ways to help pharmacies with like remote treatment monitoring and all sorts of additional revenue streams to bring into a pharmacy just because, you know, I want to make sure that pharmacies are able to exist long term. It's easy to talk about those things, though, when you're out of the pharmacy. It is so hard when you're in it. I think every owner operator and their team is like, oh, that sounds like a good idea, but like do it for me because I got all my phones ringing and 12 people lined up. And I can't imagine right now with, with vaccinations and the toll it's put on pharmacies that um, to do everything else they're used to doing and vaccinate has got to be such a strain on operations. You brought it up about DIR fees, and that is one of the most damaging things to pharmacy because if you're running a business and you can see what's happening, you're business is slowing down, you have something out there for sale and it's not selling, kind of what we all thought was business, you know, kind of like up front, you could see it. Then you're able to say, hey, we're not as busy anymore. There's not as many customers coming in. I'm going to make some changes in my business and decrease staff, but maybe use some staff over here to do this, those kind of things. Those are kind of a natural flow of a business shrinking and then maybe doing something else. The problem with pharmacy though, the problem with DIR fees and the problem with not only lower reimbursement, but fake reimbursement that comes to screw you seven months later through the back end with the DIRs is that just what you said is that pharmacists are still so damn busy. They're even busier. They're busier than ever, yet their profits going through the big hole in the bucket and they don't really realize it. Those DIRs have taken away the natural occurrence that happens when you see that there's not as many customers coming through the door, so you better do something. But with the DIRs, it's this mirage of like, things are getting busier, but they're getting much, much worse. And you don't even know what's happening hardly. Yeah, and it, what's even worse is, you know, a lot of pharmacy workflow management systems even let, like like for us, we wanted all of our staff to see pricing because we wanted everyone to see what we were making or losing. But even, you know, even when you're going through pharmacy workflow, you think, oh, I'm making, you know, $8 on this script or whatever. So the if you could see the losses every day, you're right, that would naturally help you adjust operations. The challenge is, pharmacist looks and says okay we're making three or four dollars not to suggest you know cost to dispense is like sure. 18 <laughs> okay we're at least above acquisition costs but the challenge is you're right there's this seven month lag and and you can't you you don't even think there's a problem because you're busy filling 400 scripts a day you've got your product in the back helping you fill scripts and it, it makes it so challenging and then when you think about selling a business that's something that I really wanted to kind of make sure to highlight when you talk about what did we do good, what did we do bad when we sell, is DIRs are a huge piece of that. Trying to keep track of 
what DIRs really should have been subtracted from my pharmacy versus what would have been associated with, depends on if you sell your NPI or transfer your NPI or what, but that's a huge piece. I hear the story that CMS says about how, you know, the DIRs are redirected for more services for dual eligibles and things like that. But I guess at a minimum, if they're going to exist, then just cut the network rate. So then the pharmacy can decide. Yeah. Do I want to participate? Do I not want to participate? And again, not suggesting that I want that to happen, but at least make them front loaded so that someone, you know, can decide whether or not to participate in those networks. And you see that with different uh, PSAOs, right? Some PSAOs are, are the pharmacy services, you know, administrative organizations like Health Mart Atlas and Elevate and LeaderNet and things. They are starting to kind of make the decisions to pull out of some of those MEDI networks because of those DIRs. But, um, you know, I, I, it's it's been going on for so long. I don't anticipate now that much is going to change, even though we all ask our legislators and and things, it's it's very difficult to lobby against those. You had alluded to when you're done selling the pharmacy, you're not actually done. We know emotionally you're not done, but actually financially and legally you're not done. We mentioned the DIRs can come back and bite you in the ass and there's audits and what else is there that not just emotionally, but what else is there beyond the sale date that you think you're free and clear and sitting on the beach? And you might be, but you might have a few things twirling in your mind. What are those? Yeah, I mean, so I can say one that thankfully we plan for, but a lot of people don't, is related to those PBM audits. So we had a case after the pharmacy sold where Medicaid audited us and said, hey, we were the payer of last resort. You charged us, you know, fee-for-service Medicaid, for a certain number of claims that you otherwise should have charged MedD. Thankfully, and this goes back to how you store and maintain your data, thankfully, we were able to go into our pharmacy management system and actually show the back-and-forth adjudication to prove Nope, we tried MIDD. They said no, so we billed you. We actually had to print that, send it to the state Medicaid, and um, we 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 ended up winning that. But I guess the the bigger point is how are you accessing, storing, and maintaining all of your data post sale? So I focused on that a lot because we sold very expensive drugs. You know, Hep C drugs at yeah. the time were thirty three thousand per dispense. HIV drugs were you know, about 3,000. So that was a very important piece to us about, about maintaining data access and rights. Now, a lot of your listeners, there's companies out there, one of the biggest is called Two Point. They do a lot of data conversions. Even if you haven't sold your pharmacy, you might have used them to have an old system and upgrade to a new one. A lot of people think, oh, I've got my Two Point data, and I'm fine. Well, it's one thing to have the RX image and signature log things like that. But that kind of like back and forth, even adjudication data, if I had, if we hadn't had that, we would have lost that Medicaid audit. And so really thinking about, I need all of my data, the random DUR codes that we put in to override something, right? Patient notes, 
we need all of that because it's going to come up after a transaction and you need to be able to defend yourself as a pharmacy owner operator. So that was this huge thing we thought of and planned for, but still comes up. Back in the day, back when I started pharmacy, you had a cash register and you'd punch in, you know, a bottle of aspirin. You have to hit it with your hand to make the register work. It was like an old manual one. And it's like, if the state came and did a sales tax audit, you would just say, all right, in 1985, we bought X thousand dollars in taxable merchandise. They'd say, okay, you know, now because the computers can allow it, they're like, what size toothpaste did you sell at 9.30 a.m. on this date, you know? And you better give us a damn flavor, too. You know, I'm joking. But I mean, because it's there, they can ask for more. Now, throw in the malevolence of a PBM that wants to screw you, and then five years later, if you don't have the system that you're talking about, Shelly, that can do all those things, they're going to look for stuff that they know that two-point doesn't have just to screw you. Yeah. I I hate to say this, but you're pretty much guilty until you can prove you're innocent. Of course. And, I mean, my, my parents always said that growing up. You are always guilty until you can prove it. <laughs> the challenge is with pharmacy, it ends up kind of being the same way. Yeah. But what everyone forgets when they talk about provider reductions, you know, medical community obviously always says doctor, you know, reductions with Medicare payment, Medicaid. What people forget about in pharmacy is for the most part, there's no professional services fees. So a 5% reduction is not a 5% of your time and labor. It is 5% off the top line dollar amount that a pharmacy paid for the drugs. And that's the piece that when you talk to legislators and and even back to audits, it's not even a PBM doing an audit. It's a third-party contracting agency who takes a percent of what they identify and, you know, they get a cut before they share it. But pharmacies aren't just losing profit people forget you get chargebacks because you use the wrong doctor location because he has four of them and you get a chargeback for 12 months of dispensing of that med you lost the entire cost of the drug i mean who cares about the professional services fee because you don't get them it's the cost of the drug and somehow that message gets lost you can give a million examples but it's like buying a new car and you bring it back and you say there's a little scratch down here and instead of them paying you you know two hundred dollars to get it buffed off or something like that it's like no just give me the whole damn car you know there's a scratch so i get it all and give me back my thirty thousand dollars and in all future cars you buy we're gonna extrapolate and see how many cars we're gonna charge you for all those too that that's what it is and you know I used to talk to legislators about it, like the chair of health committees and things. And one looked right at me and he said, well, Shelly, you're an idiot. Why do you sign these contracts? And, and I'm like, well, I'm not an idiot. And if your PSAO chooses to sign it, I mean, by default, you have it. If you don't want to participate and you exit a PSAO, you're going to lose all the lives. I mean, it's, but, but, but for some reason, these legislators, they just think it's as easy as better contracting and having a better team to help you, you know, negotiate. They, they don't understand that that's not the reality. All right. So audits, what else are you thinking about post-sale? Yeah. So again, obviously trying to make sure you can track your DIRs so that post-sale, you know, 
you're only paying for DIRs that were associated with your pharmacy and not whoever acquired you. That that probably is actually much trickier with um, like selling an independent to an independent, you know, than it is with chains. But even in our case, it was really the chain gave, again, I just closed it with CVS. Um, the burden of proof was on, was on us to prove, well, these DIRs are yours. These were mine. You know, this is, this is how we're going to do it. You know, something else, when you're selling a business that everyone needs to think about, and maybe our process was different, but I really don't think so, is whatever dollar amount you get for your sale, usually the fine print also suggests that that exact amount that you got, even though you didn't net that, you pay taxes, right? Is that risk during the duration of the contract? So people have to make sure, A, to try to negotiate that down to at least what you net, not what you grossed because you pay tax on that. But to keep in mind that don't be out spending all that money <laughs> because you might have to just come up with who you sold to. And most people's contracts suggest that everything you were paid is at risk for a certain period of time. So putting that money in a separate bank account that you don't ideally need to touch for a period of time until some of those liabilities pass is something that I like to make sure to share with people. The liabilities of audits and audits and just any business continuity challenges that might happen between you and the seller. The seller might sue you for a portion of something? The seller might say, we were audited because we took over your NPI. You know, we were audited. Gotcha. You didn't have all the documentation. So we had a $400,000 charge back from Optum and we're taking that from you. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying that that didn't happen to us. And again, I don't want to put any bad energy out there. But those are the types of things that owner operators need to really think about and contract for while they're going through the sales process. We talked about the sale. We talked about audit, being prepared for that post-sale. How about you? As you being the former owner, was there anything there, non-compete or anything you had to do? Or where do you fit into that? Yeah, so I think with most transactions, there's a, there's a lot of back and forth related to what are your roles and responsibilities personally post-sale, as mm -hmm. well as what are your lim potential limitations post-sale. So in the specific case of my partner and I, we had been very clear from the beginning that we were not looking for an earnout and we were not looking to stay with the organization for a period of time. Mm. And that's something people should really think about. At the time, we were very drained and tired and just kind of thought a, a cleaner transition would be easier, but you're often leaving a lot of money on the table. So that's a very personal decision, what you want to do. I tell people, if you do have an earnout, you should anticipate that you never get any of that money because you will probably get frustrated and leave. So you better be happy with that first amount of money you get, you know, because the earnout just might not be there. The earnout might be some carrot to keep you there, but a lot of times something gets argued and doesn't go right. So don't plan too much on that. Be happy with the first amount. Yeah, I personally would not. Yeah, I would not bank on my earnout, but some people might be more open-minded than others. Um, because one of the benefits is if you're willing to take an earnout, you might get a, a higher multiple off your, you know, when you're selling your store or a higher price per prescription. So it is a personal decision. The earnout then would be like stick around for 
two years and we'll give you a certain percentage of these sales or whatever, some mathematical thing to kind of help the customers have that crossover. Yeah, absolutely. Because anyone, if I was buying your pharmacy or you're buying mine, you want retention, right? So anything yeah. the buyer can do to help with retention is, is what they're going to do. But it, it could be a very significant amount. So that's why I'm not telling anyone don't do an earn out. But I guess in our case, we had decided it wasn't for us. But because we mm -hmm. did that, we did accept a much lower valuation, which, you know, three years later, I'm thinking, well, maybe we should have stuck around for a little bit. <laughs> but um, yeah. Related to specifically what our limitations were and things post-sale. So in our contract, they did want both my partner and I to stay on for 30 days after the sale of the store. However, we weren't compensated employees. So we weren't able to get mm. prescriptions or um, from a workflow perspective, day to day, I was the, pharma was the main pharmacy tech. So I kind of asked about that earlier in the interview. But um, yes, I did the government affairs and all the contracting. But day to day, typed in the scripts. We liked that Oval oh, had to be there for 30 days, kind of like a Walmart greeter, I guess, because we couldn't like fill scripts. But we thought that'll give us a way to talk to our customers and, you know, help them feel better, say goodbye. And so even though we negotiated that to as narrow of a window as possible, and maybe we didn't like it, we did think it would be beneficial for us personally, as well as um, for our customers. Come to find out, even though that was in our contract, uh, it wasn't the desire of CVS to keep us for those 30 days. So we were actually a little bit shocked the night, you know, we closed up and we ended that we actually weren't ever asked to come back or do anything. So we didn't have the opportunity to say goodbye to as many people as we would have otherwise preferred. They said, we get you for 30 days if we need you. And you kind of just felt that you'd be having this kind of slow goodbye over 30 days, but they never asked you back. Correct. And and, and again, it probably really was best for us just because that would have been a very, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of owners had to participate in that. And it probably is very um, challenging. Sure. So that was one thing to negotiate was how long do the, are the owners going to be there for? But the other piece that comes up when anyone sells a store is what is, what does your non-compete look like? So a lot of pharmacy, it depends if you're rural or urban or, you know, kind of what it is, but there's usually a mile radius at a minimum around your pharmacy that you hmm. can't practice as a pharmacist or a pharmacy tech because someone's afraid, you know, if you go work at Kroger that you'll pull all your old customers and they'll go there. So usually there's a mile radius in our specific um, arrangement because we were very disease state focused. We were actually limited in the states that our pharmacy had licensure in, my partner and I. So my partner and I could not own or operate really participate in a pharmacy in Oregon or Washington that that um, focused on HIV or hep C. So that's, hmm. that's kind of what our unique part of our um, non-compete was so that we couldn't like, um, we couldn't participate in things that would potentially pull prescriptions or customers from our location, you know, to another one. For how long? Five years. All right. Now I ain't no genius. But three years ago, you sold, and you got two more years than that. What's coming at year five? Well, um, I would say what's coming at year five is I'll still be probably quite in the weeds with family because of 
you know, what the nature of a startup contains. But I also am never against going back into community pharmacy and specialty pharmacy. It's it's who I am and what I do. I just have to make sure I can try to figure out a solution to participate that's economically feasible for all the liabilities that a pharmacy owner operator incurs. There's a lot of things like medication synchronization, some MTM, some, you know, remote treatment monitoring. There's a lot of exciting things that I think if someone had time on the front end to kind of build out, you could deploy and have a very compelling value proposition to to own and operate one. Um, but I think that really has to be very much mapped out and planned for because the, the economics are so tight right now in pharmacy. Whatever you do, Shelly, I'm going to put a lot of faith in your success. If you came back into pharmacy, you wouldn't be coming back with just a dream. You would have a dream, but it would be very well thought out and very practical because you've been there, done that. Yeah. And I think that's the, I guess that's the benefit of going through struggles, right? Is, you know, our pharmacy, I mean, every, you know, pharmacy kind of has rides like this. Um, and for us, one of those rides was in 2006 when Medicare Part D went live. Thankfully, we were knowledgeable that Medicare D was half was going to happen for like four years. So we saved every penny we had to help us weather 2006, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of pharmacies could not weather 2006 because Medicare Part D just took away all the cash business that pharmacies right. had. And so I don't want to sit here and say, oh, you know, struggling is wonderful. But one of mm -hmm. the good things about knowing where the challenges are is that you could plan for them. Sometimes if you're a newly graduated pharmacy student, you kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, you just don't know where the landmines are. And so if someone is able to kind of know where they're at and then try to plan around them, so I think COVID maybe in a way has maybe has helped support help this because people are starting to value pharmacy, you know, it, both retail pharmacies and independent pharmacies more. They're like, wow, I'm going to talk to my pharmacist about the vaccine or, you know, whether or not I choose to do it or whatever. And, and for a long time, I think pharmacy pharmacists were kept out of that discussion. Mm -hmm. Now pharmacists have to have provider status with CMS to, be able to really actualize a lot of the things that I'm sure you talk about with um, people you interview. But I, I think, you know, kind of with COVID, like there's this push to go back to small business a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. There's this push that some of the boutique hotels are succeeding while chains are really yep. struggling. I do feel strongly that pharmacy, community pharmacy can have that same success. It's just it's easy to say right now when I'm stepped outside of it a little bit, but you got to weather the storm. And I, and I understand that could be impossible, right? It, it really may not be possible for many, but for those that can, especially with the aging population, I think there's really going to be this demand for these boutique independent pharmacies. And, and that shift right now is all going digital, right? So there's, there's a million digital pharmacy startups, but mm -hmm. And that's fine for, you know, people like you or me, we could use a digital pharmacy startup and we could be okay. But there's also going to be the shift of all these individuals who need the high touch care. And with yeah. patient at risk models that PSAOs are negotiating and 
payers are more open to keeping people out of the hospital or out of long-term care. I'm still excited for pharmacy, but it, it does have to be a little bit different than what we're all used to. And again, I feel like a hypocrite because I'm not in it right now saying that because that's a little elitist when everyone else's count ports can stick all day long and they have to. So it's how do you have time to learn about what's coming, implement what's coming while you're just churning and burning as quick as you can. Yeah, no, that's not elitist because you do need that step back, especially when those that are paying us are trying to not allow us to step back because they keep everybody busy as hell, knowing that they don't have the energy to deal with all of their might, all of the scandals that are taking place from the PBMs. This is not just an independent pharmacy problem, right? When we say community pharmacy, if I was running a regional chain or whatever, I would put myself in that same bucket. The chains are, are feeling the same pressure. Maybe they have the benefit of some MBAs helping them on some different initiatives, but they're, they're, they're having the same squeeze. I can tell you with family, so I shared with you, we have a drug component, like someone has a telehealth visit, we do their labs, they need meds. I talked to three large pharmacy groups, national licensure, who did not want my scripts because they're generic medications that had to be shipped, right? That literally said, Shelly, we like you. We really like what you're doing, but your drug mix is not helpful to keeping us open. It's putting us in the red. And who would have ever thought there would be a time where a pharmacy owner would be like, hey, sorry. I don't want all your scripts because I just can't make a living doing it. Yeah. Because of my background, I certainly understood that and was like, I mean, really, I didn't want to go to my friends to fill the scripts because I knew they're not profitable. But it is very sad that even chains were telling me, you know, this just doesn't work for us economically. I think you're right about the shifting in online versus local niche pharmacy kind of things. And you're going to see that with travel, you know, travel is going to go down because of COVID and people are going to say, Hey, we could save money by not flying somewhere for a customer for our marketing agency. But then when no one's doing it, then they're going to stand out by doing it and so on. So it's going to go in phases. So, well, Shelly, golly, thanks for talking today. I think that you are someone really for our listeners to watch and follow because, you know, you're selling and you're the experience there, but going into a niche market, but then thinking about maybe coming out of that at some point and getting back into pharmacy, as long as it's niche down, you have a lot of really cool thoughts there. So thanks for sharing those with us. I really feel that in pharmacy and in healthcare in general, we're all better together. So any little tidbit that I can share that might benefit someone else, I've certainly benefited from other people's little tidbits. And so it just goes both ways. All right, Shelly, we'll be following. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.